Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 in just a moment. But first, as, as you're turning or as you're looking in your bulletin there, I want you to think about this question. I believe it's one I've asked before. It's one I've asked myself uh, quite often. It's, it's what is it that motivates you to do what, what you do? What is it that compels you and motivates you to do what you do, to, to say what you say, to, to treat people however it is that, that you treat them? What is the the motivating factor. What, what, what is it, right? We need to think through this. One of the many beauties of the Scriptures is that it shows us the inner workings in the lives of believers. It shows us the inner workings in the life of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And, and, and we see that specifically. We don't just see what disciples do or what they do. We see why they do what they do. And that's very helpful. You think of the Psalms and you read through the Psalms and you see this up and down, all these emotions that are, that are being shared in the Psalms. And the Psalms are there to give, they give us words to pray to God throughout all circumstances in our lives, right? We get the inner workings of the disciple in the Psalms. I think of 2 Timothy and Second uh, Peter, you know, these letters that were written at the end of the life or the lives of these people, and they had something to say at the end of their life. All, all Scripture is something to say to us, but I'm just thinking specifically something that's going through Peter's mind, something that's going through Paul's mind at the end of their life, and they write these things. And so we get to see the inner workings, and we get to hear their last words, which is, which is great. And so in our passage today, we're going to get a glimpse into the inner workings of the heart of the Apostle Paul and the disciples who were with him. And just to set up some of the context, if you, if you take just a cursory reading of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you will see that there are some major issues. Just go read 1st Corinthians and you will see that there were major issues that Paul and the other disciples are dealing with in the church. I mean, think of this. You had, you had divisions in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. You had these divisions in the church. You had gross sexual immorality that was, to, that was not even named among the Gentiles that was going on in Corinth. You had, you had drunkenness and gluttony taking place at the Lord's table. You had the abuse of spiritual gifts. And then you even had heresy regarding the resurrection. And so think of all that stuff that's going on in this church. And there's the Apostle Paul continuing to pour his life out for them. To pour his life out for that church and the other disciples who were with him. Not only did we have those issues going on, but Paul, actually, when you start reading in uh, 2 Corinthians, you see that there were direct charges that these people were laying against his character. They're saying Paul's a liar. And then they were laying charges against his apostolic ministry. Paul's not really an apostle. He's JV, 
right? And so Paul was dealing with all this and what, what would motivate us, what would motivate him to continue on and to labor? We're going to see that today. And that applies to us because if you look at all the things that I listed out, we have very similar things that go on in the present day church. And we all have been tired and at times grown cynical and, and just wanted to throw in the towel. Whether it's, whether it's our own body here or when you look at the, 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 the church abroad and you just you think, why, why continue? And so hopefully this morning, we'll see why. You get in 2 Corinthians and Paul is, in 2 Corinthians, he is making a case for his character and his apostolic ministry in the first couple of chapters. And then you see in chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians where he's really highlighting the glories of the new covenant and the preaching of the gospel. And you get into chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians and he's, he's talking about how we are in this earthly tent that our bodies are wasting away, but we're being renewed day after day in the inner man. And then he gets to these verses in, in, in verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 and 13, and you see that it's the fear. One of the things is the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, the fear of the Lord that motivates Paul to continue doing what he's doing. And you also see that there's another charge that seems to be laid on Paul. And this is just building up so we can understand verses 14 and 15. But in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, Paul is saying this, he says, for if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. And so apparently people there were saying, Paul, you're crazy. All this Jesus stuff, you're crazy. It's driving you mad. If you read Acts, that was also said about Paul in the Acts. They said, Paul, your learning is driving you mad. And he said, if, if, if we're out of our mind, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. I can't help but speak what I speak. Because I've seen and I've heard, I have to say it. It's for God. And then you have this charge of, Paul, you're too sober-minded. Um, you, you, you know, you're, you're in your right mind. So it's like he's, he's got it coming from both sides. And he said, if, it, if we're acting in that way, it's for you. And so one thing that we need to notice here before we jump into to 14 and 15, one thing that's missing from Paul's response, if we're, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. What's missing? Self. Paul. He's not doing this for him, right? It's either for God or for neighbor. And we know if we read through Paul, that, uh, through the writings of Paul, that I'm sure he struggled with those things, but that's something that he constantly fought against was this, this self-centeredness and selfishness. This was for God and for neighbor that he was going to continue on. And so... Our verses today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, says this. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. 
And so one thing that we see here, main point that we're seeing in these two verses is that Christ's love for us, Christ's love for Paul compels, it compels us to live for him and not for ourselves. And John Calvin, he summed it up this way. He said, Christ died for us so that we might die to ourselves. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. And we're going to see it in two points this morning. Mainly, we're going to be looking at the evidence of his love for us. And then we're going to see the effect of his love. So the evidence of his love for us. You know, first it's helpful to know when you read this verse, this is the ESV translation here. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. I mean, grammatically speaking, it it could be Paul's love for Christ that's controlling him or Christ's love for him. I mean, if you just look at it in a grammatical sense, but if, if, if we get the rest of the verse included into it and we read it in context, this is talking about Christ's love for Paul. We do not put the the cart before the horse, right? This is Christ's love for Paul. I love the way the NIV, it renders it this way. It says, for Christ's love compels us. And this clears up, you know, any misconceptions. And you think, well, okay, Josh, this is great. Why is this important? Because it's life or death, whether or not we get this right. Law and gospel. Law says do Gospel says it's been done, okay? And so we've got to make sure we don't confuse these two things. And sadly, it's, 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 it's happening in our evangelical world today. There are people confusing law and gospel. And we must remember that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it all starts with his love for you. And for us. And I, I was thinking about this. This may seem like a silly illustration, but I was thinking, you know, how many ladies in here, this, it was kind of popular when, when I was growing up, I guess. How many ladies in here, you, you liked a guy and you got the flower out and you pulled the, he loves me, he loves me not. You know, and you went through there and whatever the flower told you, that was the truth. And then you may not have done that. You know, you guys, I know at least some of my friends, we had the magic eight ball, Right? And you ask that magic eight ball, you know, does she like me? Will she go to the dance with me? And you shake it up and you look and it says, outlook not so good. And uh, heartbreak ensues and, and it's just, that's the truth, right? And the reason I share this is because this is exactly how we treat the love of God for us quite often. We, we, we think God's love for us is somehow fickle and that he's going to change his mind and, and stop loving us, right? This is how we think of God's love for us. We, and I've heard many people say this, we often read or determine whether or not God loves us based on the external circumstances of our lives. That's deadly. And we don't determine it based on what he has said and what he's done. And his saying is his doing, but that's a whole nother, he's, he's amazing. All right? So we determine God's love often by our circumstances in life and not eternal, unchanging truth. And you think of Paul in this situation in Corinth, like he could have certainly been in his room, just, just you know, God must hate me, look at all the people around me and what they're doing, but he wasn't doing that. 
He was reveling in the love of God. And Paul gives us rock-solid evidence here in this verse that God loves us. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. And so the fact that Paul says, you know, this is something that we've come to a conclusion. We believe it. It's something that he thought about. It's something that he meditated on. It's not just something that he heard one time in Sunday school and then kind of left it. It's something that he thought about. They've come to a conclusion. They are convinced. They believe his love for them. Why? Someone died. So don't let familiarity with with these verses lull us to sleep. It's fantastic news. It's knee-buckling news. It's if I could do a backflip, backflip news, right? This is, this is insane that someone would die for me, a sinner. That someone would die for you. I mean, we know this, that sin came into the world through one man and death through that sin and death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so when Adam fell in the garden... helpless without God. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this, the love of God is made manifest among his only son so that we might have life, that we might live through him. In this, God's word that we should meditate on constantly. He is telling us over and over and over again, look at the cross. I love you. I care for you. And we think of this one. In the verse it says, one has died for all. Who, who is this one? He's the son of God, the high king of heaven, the one who needs nothing because he possesses everything, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the author of life. He's the one. And just to clear something up in this, in this passage here, these two verses, the all here is it's not teaching some form of universalism. Because if we read the whole verse, we see that all that are in this verse are those who believe in Christ, or those who would believe in Christ. Because they are united to him in his death. Okay, those who are united to Christ in his death. That's what we have here. He's died for those. This love of Jesus is what constrained Paul. It compelled Paul. It hemmed him in. It walled him in. It's a picture of this uh, being caught in this swift current, like a river, and it's driving you down to a certain end. The love of Christ compelling. That, that's what that is like. It compelled Paul and it compelled the disciples of his day. And this love compels Christians in this present day. His love for you compels. And Charles Spurgeon, he said it, it's not that it ought to compel certainly, but it's that it does. And so there's, there's a question that we do have to ask. Is there, any, is there any bit of Christ's love compelling us to do what we do, or is it just non-existent? Of course, it's going to be to varying degrees, but if it's not there, then a person doesn't know Christ. They've not placed their faith in Christ. 
So we got to ask, what is it that compels us, that hems us in, that causes us to do and say the things that we do? Is it a drive to attain wealth and material possessions? You know, money and jobs are good and necessary. They're gifts of God. But the drive and, 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 and that being the main determining factor, and, and, uh, factor in your life is deadly. You know, is it, is it the desire to be popular or the desire to please others? I definitely, I struggle with people pleasing. These things, are they what compel you, that hem you in and push you forward in life? Are they, is this the reason uh, that you make the decisions that you make? It's, if, if, that's, if, if people pleasing and popularity are things that are compelling us, it's going to keep us from speaking hard truth in love when necessary. It's going to keep us from receiving that truth too, when spoken from others, it's, it's going to keep us or it's going to cause us to compromise on what we know to be right and true because we want to fit in with a certain group, right? Jesus warns us in the Gospel of John. He says, how can you believe? How can you say that you believe when you receive glory from one another and not from the only true God? We don't seek our glory and praise from men and women. Maybe ease and comfort. Maybe this is what compels us to do what we do. And it's so easy to buy into the idea of me time. And I'm not saying there's not, we, we need time with the Lord. I mean, us and the Lord, we need that time. But, but it's, it's kind of just, you know, we say we need some me time. And so it just kind of envelops all of life. And in this mentality of you do you, I'll do me, we just kind of do our, do our own thing. It's all about me, comfort. And the list could go on and on. And we are so prone to let other things, even good things, creep in and they become the driving force in our life. And at the, at the, at the center of all of these examples is self, Right? something that was missing from, from, from these verses when Paul was talking about why he was doing the things that he was doing. One thing that, that, that's in the center of all these things is self. I mean, self-centeredness. You know, we've built our own little throne and we've built our own kingdoms and we have attempted to de-God God. And surely Paul struggled with these temptations just as we do, but, but we have here Paul giving us the remedy to our greatest problem. The greatest threat to humanity is not an external threat. I mean, it doesn't mean that external threats are not important. Satan is an external threat, but the greatest threat is not an external threat. The greatest threat to humanity is deeply embedded inside the human heart. I mean, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said all these things, all these, it's not what you put in your mouth that, that defiles you, it's what comes out. All these things arise from the heart within, the killer within. And Paul says that the love of Christ for us, his death and resurrection, this is the solution. You know, there's evidence of his love for you. He has died for you. He lived for you, died for you, and rose for you. 
And he's given us his precious promises in his word. And then he gives us tangible reminders of his love for us in the sacraments. A baptism and a Lord's Supper is not just something that we come in here and just mindlessly partake in. Those are tangible reminders of God's grace to you. He's saying, I I love you. I, I am yours. You are mine. Right? He is yours and you are his if you were a Christian. And this is what Paul kept going on and on and laboring. This is why he kept laboring for these crazy Corinthians, right? If he had been compelled by selfish motives, he would probably have never written 2 Corinthians. He would have just just dipped out after the first letter. And he wrote other letters to him, but we at first and second Corinthians are God's inspired word, word uh, letters that we have. But Paul would have dipped out a long time ago. I mean, you think about that. If somebody says something bad about us, we're ready to just write them off and be done with them. But he was compelled by the love of Christ for him and others because Jesus had died for him. Therefore, they had all died. And this brings us to our second point, the effects of Christ's love. So look at the verse. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And this is getting into another one of the great mysteries of the Christian life. Something that Trey was reading about in Romans uh, chapter 6 this morning. And we tend to have an anemic view of what all was accomplished for us on the cross. We have, uh, uh, tend to have an anemic view of the gospel and what was accomplished for us on the cross. We often don't think of our union with Christ that we are, union, we, we are in union with him by faith. And Paul says that believers in Christ died with Christ. So if you're a believer here in 2022, you died 2,000 years ago. That sounds crazy, but it's truth. It's what the scriptures say. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, your old man died with him on that cross. Your debt was paid. Your sin was charged to Christ and laid upon him, he was killed in your place as if it were you. The old you, the old me. Our sinful nature was crucified. And that means that not only is our penalty for sin gone, which is what we tend to, we tend to hang out there, and that's a glorious truth, but the power of sin over us has been dealt with, has been broken. We are no longer slaves to sin if we are in Christ. This is what Augustus Toplady, the the, the great hymn writer, what he wrote about in Rock of Ages, speaking of Christ's work, he says, Be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Our justification is a one-time declaration of God and a change in our status from righteous to un- or unrighteous to righteous. That's our justification. And then we have this lifelong process of sanctification. Our growth in holiness, our growth in Christ likeness. It's what Calvin called the double grace. 
Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all of our sins and accepts us righteous based solely on the righteousness of Christ imputed to us that's received by faith. And then sanctification, it's a work of God's free grace whereby he renews in the whole man after the image of God and he enables us more and more to die to sin and live unto righteousness. We have been blessed. We have been greatly blessed, y'all. We've been cleansed of our sin and, and, our, and the power of sin is broken. And we have to continue to come back to these truths and store them up in our hearts. Romans 6 is all about that. We store that up in our hearts. We must consider ourselves, think through it, come to the conclusion we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. So Christ, he, had, he died, therefore they died and we died with him, those whose faith is in Jesus. We're not guilty, we're not bound, we're clean and free. And for what? He gets to that in these verses here. For what? I mean, so that we can live our best life now, like according to worldly standards, so that we can pour our lives out for some nebulous cause, some, some career divorced from the main goal of glorifying God. Is that why he died for us? You know, it's, it's so easy. I think of this all the time. It's so easy to recite the Westminster Shorter Catechism Q&A number one. Everybody in here probably knows it. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we often recite it and we may even roll our eyes or yawn at that, but that, there's nothing better than that. Like you can know why you were created. You do know it's for Him. We were created for Him. I mean, I spent, I, I've told y'all, I've spent most of my life going, why am I here? Like what am I here to do? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him. Well, how do I know what to do? He's given us 66 books. He's given us Proverbs and Psalms and Romans. He's given us all these things that can help us. He's given us leaders in the church to help us. He's given us families to help us. Help us walk in this world and not just be theoretical truths, but it's something that we actually apply in our lives and they see it lived out or we see it lived out among one another. Instead of the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism Q&A number one, we typically, we, you know, we like the, the World Shorter Catechism Q&A number one. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify me and enjoy me, you know, for 80 years if I'm lucky. Um, think of how silly that is. That's sad. But just as Paul was reminding the Corinthians of the great love of Christ, and the realities that, that accompany that, he's reminding us here today that Christ has loved you and he's given himself for you. The world does not love you. The world in its system does not love you. Christ has loved you and given himself for you to set you free from yourself, from self-destruction. The world teaches us just be who you are. Be the best version of you. Treat yourself, as, as uh, they say in Parks and Rec. You know, self-promotion, self-gratification, 
self-esteem, selfies, you name it. When carnal self-love, and there's a difference between, I wanna, I wanna clear this up too. I've recently seen, I've seen this in this book by Mark Jones called Knowing Sin. There's a natural self-love that's good. Like you eat or, or drink or breathe so that you continue to live, that's good, Right? And then, and then there's this thing that he calls carnal self-love is what we're talking about here that's a driving force. And the only destination uh, for carnal self-love is destruction and ruin. And we leave people in our wake, in our wreckage, right? We live for ourselves and we hurt other people. And we don't li- truly live a- as we were created to live and that's for God. And so... As we close out, I just want you to think, how does Christ love for you? How does his love for you shown in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and in his continual intercession for you, how does it affect what you do in the here and now? You know, imagine meditating on the person of Christ, thinking about Christ and what he's done, meditating on his truth and his love for you. And then put yourself in any situation in your life. You know, you think, how does that affect how I respond to my wife or, my, or, or your husband or your child? Knowing that you, we've, I've been meditating on this love of Christ for me. How does, that, how does that change how I affect, or how does that affect, you know, how I respond? Students, as you're heading off to college, and uh, some of you, you're still in high school or middle school, you'll get there, okay? But how does it affect how you treat others, the things that you say about other people? How does it, how does it change that? When you, when you, like really, if we think about this, we could never hold a grudge. If we have been cleansed of all of our sin and our sin against an, a holy God, an infinite God is, is deserving of infinite punishment and someone has died in my place, like how could I hold a grudge against anyone? Right? Or how could I say, and, and, and we all struggle with this, how could I say uh, evil things about another person no matter what they believe? Right? How does it affect what we do in our day-to-day life. And we gotta stop using this old saying, it's just who I am. I'm sorry, this is who I am. I'm just how, how it's gonna be. No, there's better things for you, Christian. If, you are, if your faith is in Christ, that old man, that old woman, they're dead, okay? It's not just who we are, okay? For the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so meditate on these truths. Let's let's pray for one another. Help each other in this walk together. Don't give up because things are hard. Christ's love compels us to continue and we need his help. So I'm gonna close out with this prayer. I'm praying uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I'll pray for us. It says, For this reason, 
I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.